1997, Joe Cinque was killed by a fatal dose of heroin administered by his girlfriend, Anu Singh. Those details are not in dispute, but pretty much everything else is, and the final outcome of this case left much of Australia in shock. I'm Charlie, and this is Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I'm going to give a quick apology if I sound a little more nasally than usual. I'm not sure that's possible, but I do have some kind of allergy cold thing going on, but I'm getting ready to leave town and this is my last chance to record and get the episode out in time. So I'm just going to do my best. Tonight's story is one I'm not sure how familiar it will be with my non-Australian audience, but I'm sure a lot of my Australian listeners are like this old thing about this case. I want to thank Kate Morris at the top for helping me research this case. We are talking about two people who seem to really have a lot in common on the surface, But their paths crossing was the worst possible thing that could have happened. Let's start with Joe. Joe Cinque was born in 1971 in Newcastle, which is in New South Wales in Australia. He was the oldest of two sons born to Italian immigrants, Nino and Maria. He grew up in a pretty happy family. His mother's dream was to be a mother. A defining moment in Joe's childhood occurred when he was eight years old. The family was involved in a rollover car accident that left Maria seriously injured. Joe had actually been thrown from the car, because we're talking 1979, so seatbelts and restraints weren't used like we use them today. Miraculously, though, everyone survived the crash, and Joe and his three-year-old brother had escaped major injury. Nino had been knocked unconscious and was transported to the hospital. Maria was the most severely injured. She spent a few months in the hospital. She needed multiple surgeries on her leg and her foot. But pretty much as soon as Nino recovered, He was out of the hospital, and he got right back to work. He had to catch up on bills and keep the family afloat. So Joe was eight and his brother was three. Without their parents fully available to them, Joe really jumped in to help. He would do whatever an eight-year-old could do, which included running laundry and prepping easy meals for himself and his little brother. Maria believes that this carried over into Joe's adult life, where he was always the caregiver in his friendships and in his relationships. So when a needy girlfriend came around, he would jump in and try to take care of her. He didn't really date a lot in high school, though. He was really busy with sports and school. He was considered a bit of a late bloomer. He went to college majoring first in architecture, 
but he loved the outdoors. And this idea that he would be stuck in an office for the rest of his life didn't really inspire him. So he switched to civil engineering. When Joe finished college, he took a year-long trip on his own around the world. He spent quite a bit of time in Italy with his extended family, but also went to the United States and he went to Greece. I think this trip is important to point out because Joe was often portrayed in the media as being very innocent and possibly very naive. I think in some ways he was. Like with the idea that he wanted to help people and he thought he could help people. He thought that if he took good enough care of them, they would be okay. And so he was innocent and maybe naive in that way. Maybe he was a bit naive with relationships. But in a lot of other ways, he was worldly and savvy and sophisticated. People can be both innocent and naive and also street smart in other ways. It doesn't really make sense to flatten people into one characteristic like that. In late 1995, 24-year-old Joe was living in his hometown of Newcastle, and he was working as an engineer. While he was at a nightclub one night, he met 23-year-old law student Anu Singh. Now, Anu and Joe had a lot in common. They were both into sports, and they both grew up in Newcastle. Anu, though, was just in Newcastle at this point, visiting family for the holidays. She lived in Canberra, where she attended the Australian National University, which is located about five hours away from Newcastle. Also like Joe, her parents were immigrants. She was two, though she was only one when the family came to Australia from India. So she grew up in Australia. Anu was a good student. She was very bright. She was reportedly rather clingy towards her mother, sleeping in her parents' bed until she was four or five years old. But in my experience, this isn't necessarily a sign of any real attachment issue or a lasting one. There may have been more going on that has led to the reporting of her having early attachment issues. From what I've seen, though, she did fine in school and she made friends easily. So I'm not really sure that this attachment issue is really an issue. Where Joe and Anu differ is their teen years. Anu blossomed early. By the time she was 13, she looked quite a bit older and she started rebelling against her family's more conservative expectations. Her father really wanted her to dress conservatively and stay home and study, but Anu liked miniskirts and hanging out with friends. By the time she was in year 10, which would have made her roughly 15 years old, she started drinking and experimenting with marijuana, Within the next year, she would start extreme dieting, even though she was already slender. When she graduated secondary school slash high school in 1990, she moved to the Australian National University, majoring in law and economics. 
while she was there, she experienced some pretty serious homesickness. Again, that's actually not uncommon. She would call her mom constantly, and she went home pretty much every weekend, even though it was a five-hour drive. And now flying is a bit over an hour, but that would get expensive really quickly. But she did it anyway. Anu decided that she needed a year off of school, so she took off the following year, returning in 1992. Anu completed school, though over these years she was at school, her disordered eating became more severe. She started exercising excessively while alternating fad diets. She began getting into heavier drugs like cocaine and speed, both which will suppress your appetite. She was becoming fully obsessed with her body image, which was distorted in the way it usually is when people have serious eating disorders. She thought areas of loose skin were fat, and she wanted to get rid of them through liposuction. She also began a very serious relationship with a man named Simon, and they even moved in together in 1995, though even at the time, that didn't seem like a good idea. Their relationship was already strained before they moved in together. This situation didn't last long, and Simon moved out after a fairly short amount of time. This end of the relationship sent a new spiraling. She became seriously depressed. She was in law school now, and she started missing class. Her grades tanked. She was crying all the time, and she lost so much weight that she weighed around 90 pounds. This is really when those around her began to realize that this was more than a rebellious teen or a homesick young adult. Anu was vibrant, she was energetic, she was very attractive, and those things helped mask what was going on with her. But when her energy started slipping away and she stopped taking care of her appearance, people started seeing that she was really really struggling. Her parents wanted her to get into therapy, see a doctor, try medication, but she refused. Her drug use increased at this time as well, particularly with stimulants, and this includes meth. She started eating nothing but cookies and drinking Coca-Cola, but not in significant quantities to cause any weight gain. She was plagued by insomnia, which caused by depression or caffeine or drugs, you can take your pick. When she met Joe, Anu's mask that everything was fine was slipping, but not completely. The person Joe saw when he first met her was that life-of-the-party person that she put out there. That's the person Joe thought she was deep down. The truth was that person was the fake Anu. The real Anu was in serious trouble. Joe and Anu's relationship started off pretty intense, even with the five-hour distance. Joe couldn't leave Newcastle at the time because of his job, and Anu was in law school still, so they had to make long-distance work. 
They talked on the phone all the time. One month, Joe's phone bill was like $700. In the evenings, Joe's family always sat down to dinner together. Now, Maria didn't care that her sons were grown. If they were home, they were having their meal together. Anu would call in the middle of dinner every night to the point that Maria grabbed the phone once and asked her to call earlier or call later. Don't interrupt their dinner every single night. Now, Joe was already traveling to Canberra pretty much every weekend. Then Anu started calling him in the middle of the week, saying she was sick, that she needed Joe. He had to come down right away. He couldn't wait until the weekend. From the point of view of the Cinque family, Anu just wanted Joe's attention to only be on her, and she would manipulate things to get that attention, which included pretending to be sick. At some point, Joe confided in Maria that Anu was obsessed with her weight, and also that she seemed to swing from happy to sad to angry very quickly. Maria was, of course, concerned about this new woman in Joe's life, but he was an adult and there was nothing the family could do to stop him from moving to be with her, and that's exactly what he did. There's also a vague timing detail here. At some point, Joe mentioned to Anu that Ipecac induces vomiting. As part of her complicated eating disorder, Anu thought if she ate anything, she could just now take Ipecac afterwards. She would vomit it up before her body processed the calories. Now, I do have to interject here that research on bulimia shows that most people with bulimia are average weight, and this practice of eating and then purging tends to actually cause weight gain. So anyone out there who hears this and is thinking, oh, Ipecac, no, it not only will it make you very sick, it doesn't work. So I just wanted to put that in there because I know talking about eating disorders can be triggering to people who are already struggling. So this method doesn't work. Don't bother trying it. So a new started experiencing some health issues. She became convinced that she had a muscle-wasting disease that was somehow caused by the Ipecac because her symptoms, she thought, started the same time she started taking the Ipecac. Now, symptoms of a muscle-wasting disease. We have muscle twitching, aches, pains, weakness, fatigue. So guess what? severe eating disorders also cause. What were very likely the physical symptoms of malnutrition, Anu blamed on a muscle-wasting disease. And she believed it was fatal, even though doctors couldn't find evidence of this disease. But because she believed the Ipecac was causing the disease, and Joe told her about the Ipecac, clearly this muscle-wasting disease was all Joe's fault in her mind.
This decline in mental wellness also included feelings that something was crawling under her skin, that her skin was rotting. Her father said she would take several showers a day to counteract this rotting of her skin. But it's actually pretty hard to say how much was a hallucination from a mental illness or if she was in some type of withdrawal from a drug she was taking or the hallucination was drug-induced. This is one of the reasons why dual treatment centers that focus on treating mental health and addiction are so necessary for many people. You really can't treat one without treating the other because of how mental illness and substances interact with each other. When Anu would go into the doctors for these physical complaints, the doctors would prescribe her psychiatric medication at times. They saw that what she was complaining about was part of her mental health. A common side effect of some psychiatric medications is weight gain. And you can see where this is going. Someone like Anu wouldn't take medications with that side effect. So she generally did not take these medications. Anu started isolating herself more and more. She was missing a lot of classes. She wasn't going out very much. Joe's family and friends, they didn't think this relationship was going to last. Some thought he was staying only because he felt bad for her. He felt responsible. He didn't want to abandon her when she was in so much distress. But others thought Joe had one foot out of the door anyway, and he had already realized that the relationship wasn't going to last. Anu gave an interview many years later to Philip Adams, where she said that Joe was expecting her to snap out of this at some point, that at some point she was going to go back to being the woman that he met at the nightclub. She just had to try harder, that she felt like he was frustrated and even angry at her for not getting better, and that only made her blame him more and more. On the other hand, she also insisted that Joe wasn't going to leave her, she wasn't going to leave him, and that they were planning on getting married the next year when she finished school. Now, Joe's family. They feel that the characterizations of Anu's mental health were exaggerated. They did not see this behavior when Joe and Anu would visit and stay in the family home. They didn't see this. They don't believe that there was going to be any marriage, though. There were notes in Joe's planner that led them to believe he was making plans to leave Anu in October 1997. Also, his suitcases and some of his clothes were missing from the apartment when they went there to clean it out after his death. They think that shows that he had already partially moved out. However, Anu said she was not aware that he was planning to leave. Even though they were fighting a lot, she had no idea if he had made any plans to leave. She was clueless to it. In early 1997, Anu told a friend named Rachel that she planned on going on a killing spree. This is the earliest indication we have that she was having violent thoughts. 
though this could have started earlier. This is just, as far as we know, the earliest she was giving it voice. Her killing fantasy seemed to be a revenge fantasy, and that might actually be part of why it wasn't taken seriously. She said she planned on killing Joe, and then she was going to kill her ex-boyfriend, and then she was going to kill her doctors who weren't treating her properly. Rachel didn't go to the police and say, um, yeah, my friend is going to kill a bunch of people. And we actually will see a lot of people who heard Anu talk about murder and about suicide, and they universally did not report it to the authorities. Now, the only reason offered is that no one believed she was serious. Anu was histrionic. She spoke in extremes. She spoke in hyperbole. And no one thought she would actually do anything. They thought this was all about her creating drama, more like a melodrama, like a play that she was creating around herself. And there may actually be some truth to that. The problem was that when Anu stopped speaking in hyperbole, when she stopped not being serious about it, no one knew the difference. So Anu and a fellow law student named Mahavi Rao would go to campus and go to the library and look up suicide methods together. So we know that Madhavi at least knew some of what Anu was talking about. By August of 1997, Anu appeared to become more serious about this. She spoke with a man who has only been named as Mr. T. His name's been suppressed by the courts. We do know he was also a student. So she talked to the student, Mr. T, about buying a gun. He was aware she was buying it and talking about suicide. So he talked to her about his own struggles with mental health and with depression and with choosing not to go through with suicide. Anu then pivoted away from the gun idea and decided that she was going to overdose. So she asked Mr. T how much heroin she would need to do this, and he said about $150 worth. At some point in September, Anu went to a counselor at the university and made accusations that Joe had been abusing her, but that she was too dependent on him emotionally and financially to leave. Some people question her accusations because, again, they viewed her as histrionic, and nobody saw any evidence of Joe being violent. In early October, Anu bought about $250 worth of heroin from Mr. T, so a bit more than he had advised her she would need. Mr. T even had to show her how to shoot up, because though Anu had done drugs, she hadn't done injections. She then traded some of the heroin for a drug called Rohypnol. It's a strong sedative and most people have heard of it in the context of being a date rape drug. It's important to note that Madhavi was with Anu for a lot of this. She was later characterized as being serious and bookish and a bit of a doormat, particularly when it came to Anu. Whatever reasons Madhavi had for tagging along, 
she did it. October 20th, 1997 was the date a new planned to carry out her suicide. But she told people that this was actually a suicide pact between her and Joe. Joe, however, was never aware that there was any type of suicide pact. This was going to be, if Anu carried it out, a murder-suicide. Madhavi knew about this, and she helped invite some of their fellow students over to Anu and Joe's home for a dinner party. This dinner party was some sort of final farewell to the couple, who would then presumably kill themselves that night. I will say that dinner parties for this particular circle of friends and acquaintances was fairly common. So just because people attended didn't necessarily mean they knew the particular purpose of this particular dinner party. Though we do know that at least some of them knew. Obviously, since Joe was unaware of this so-called suicide pact, it must not have been overtly discussed at dinner. And Anu knew that Joe didn't know. So that's where the Rohypnol comes in. She slipped it into his coffee that night. The plan was that while he was unconscious, she would inject him with a lethal dose of heroin and then inject herself. For some reason, that night she couldn't inject him. I read that the heroin had congealed, which isn't something I knew could happen, but my knowledge of heroin is limited. So Anu repeated this entire production four days later on a Friday night. The same people were invited to the dinner party, And Anu seemed to be in a great mood this night, better than usual. She had taken a small dose of the Rohypnol herself, which really just, like any sedative anxiety medication, it took the edge off, but she didn't take enough that she was rendered unconscious. But like she did on Monday, she put enough in Joe's coffee that he was unconscious. Around 3 a.m., all of the guests except Madavi left. She stayed for another two, three hours talking with Anu while Joe was unconscious. Joe ended up sleeping through most of Saturday thanks to the Rohypnol and woke up groggy in the early evening. Joe was awake, but he was out of it. He was stumbling around, knocking things over, Anu managed to slip more Rohypnol to him, and he passed out again. This time, she didn't hesitate. She dosed him with a massive dose of heroin. Now, that's one version of what could have happened. It is also possible that Anu had given him some heroin on Friday night, but it wasn't enough. And then on Sunday morning, she bought more and gave him another dose then. So between Friday night, Saturday night, or Sunday morning, it's unclear when the fatal dose of heroin was given or any of the doses. We can't assume Anu is a really reliable narrator here. 
Joe had the major symptoms of an overdose, vomiting, trouble breathing, his lips started turning blue, and Anu just sat by and watched. At some point on Sunday morning, she picked up her friend Madhavi and brought her to the house. So Madhavi saw Joe unconscious, but he was breathing, and in her words, he was quote-unquote stable. Anu then took Madhavi to the ATM, where Madhavi took out money from her own account that she then gave to Anu for some reason, and then the two parted ways. Later that morning, Anu called a friend and asked what should she do if someone was overdosing. Her friend told her, do CPR and call triple zero, the emergency number in Australia. That way, whoever was overdosing could get a dose of Narcan. Anu said she wasn't doing that. She was not going to call the police. She didn't want to get in trouble. She knew that Joe would be really angry if he came around and found out that she had dosed him with Rohypnol and heroin. But Anu did hang up with the friend and did call emergency services anyway. Anu hysterically told the dispatcher that someone at her house was throwing up and black stuff was coming out of his mouth and nose. She said she thought he had overdosed. When asked her name, she said it was Olivia. Then she was asked for her address, and she gave the wrong one repeatedly. She was instructed on how to perform CPR, but she said she couldn't do it because she couldn't get his mouth open. Eventually, after 20 minutes on the phone, she gave the correct address, and the paramedics were able to find them. They found Joe in the bed, and he was not breathing, but he was still warm. CPR only resulted in the air being blown into his stomach because the tar-like vomit was blocking his airways. They couldn't even intubate Joe because they couldn't get the tube down. Anu told the police about the Rohypnol, saying that Joe had taken it himself. But then she said while he was passed out, she did inject him with the heroin and a lot of it. Eventually, the paramedics realized that they're not going to be able to resuscitate him. It had just been too long. And they stepped back, knowing he was gone. Anu, at this point, lost it. She became hysterical again. She started shouting about how they were supposed to, quote, go together. Then she threw herself at his body, and the police had to physically pull her off of him and take her out of the room. And then a few of the paramedics had to stay in the living room to physically keep her from running back to Joe's body. At 1.50 p.m. on Sunday, October 26, 1997, Joe Cinque was pronounced dead. From the Rohypnol on Friday night until his death, 36 hours had passed. Anu was, of course, immediately arrested. She just told them She injected an unconscious man with heroin, so obviously they were suspecting this was a murder. But she was insisting at this time that this was a suicide pact that the two of them had been planning for a couple of months. Now, other times she told people that Joe took the Rohypnol so he would be asleep while she killed just herself. And then there were other times that it seems like the story was more of a murder-suicide, that she was 
just taking him with her as she exited this life. The day Joe died, his mother Maria was wondering why he hadn't called her all weekend, so she went ahead and called him. A police constable answered the phone. While on the phone with the constable, there was a knock at her door, and it was the Newcastle police. They had been dispatched to make the death notification. On autopsy, it was shown that Joe didn't just die of a massive overdose. He had asphyxiated on his vomit, and that the respiratory depressants, meaning heroin and rohypnol, had contributed. But basically, Joe could have been saved if emergency services were called earlier. So while there were a few people at that dinner party that night who knew something about the supposed suicide pact, none of them were charged with anything with the exception of Madhavi. She didn't overdose him, but she was at the apartment over that weekend. She could have called emergency services early enough to save Joe. She knew he was in distress, and she chose not to do anything. It's not entirely clear to me how Madhavi's name came into this or how her exact movements that weekend were uncovered, whether Anu told the police about her or people at the dinner party did. I'm not sure. But Madhavi was also charged with murder and released on bond. Anu and Madhavi's joint trial began. It lasted about four weeks before they hit a giant legal hurdle. There was new evidence discovered after the trial began that was going to be admitted. However, it was only admissible against Anu and not Madhavi. So in the John Juka case, which Insight covered nearly three years ago at this point, and you can still find that episode in this feed, but in that case, they had the same issue. Not all of the evidence was admissible against both John Juka and his co-defendant, but they knew that going in, so they ended up sitting two separate juries. When the evidence was not admissible against John, his jury left the courtroom and didn't hear the testimony, and then, you know, vice versa. The issue here with this case is that the evidence was newly discovered. They hadn't impaneled two juries. They only had the one. So the only solution was to abort this trial entirely and move forward with two separate trials for each woman. So they had to essentially start completely over, but not entirely, because both women decided to shift and request bench trials. And both trials were heard by the same judge, Ken Crispin, who had presided at the jury trial. So he had a pretty good idea of the evidence against them going in. In early 1999, Anu's trial started. She went first. Anu was willing to admit at this point that she had killed Joe. There was no suicide pact. But she was claiming diminished capacity. She was going to plead that her severe mental illness had led to her taking these actions. Her father gave a lot of the testimony about her mental health as a teenager and a young adult, which we've already covered with some depth. 
Her teenage diary was admitted into evidence as proof of her mental health issues and proof that they started in her teen years, if not earlier. But the Crown argued with the experts about what this actually meant. I mean, whiny teenage angst versus mental illness, and they went back and forth on that. One thing that went against the Crown was that the judge did not let in the evidence about the earlier dinner party, the one before the final one where she ended up not injecting Joe. He said there just wasn't enough evidence for it to be considered. This would go a long way towards proving premeditation and also proving that there was an opportunity, there was a lapse in time where Anu could have reconsidered her plan and she didn't, but it wasn't able to be considered. The experts for the defense were largely mental health experts, and they argued that Anu had severe borderline personality disorder. She hit six of the nine criteria, but the Crown was spinning the same information as she was simply a selfish person. She was a spoiled child of two doctors. She was just angry. Now, something I thought was interesting here was that Anu did not have to meet with any of the Crown experts. In the U.S., as far as I know, the state has a right to have a psychologist interview anyone putting up a psychiatric defense. But I got my law degree at Hudson University, which means I just watch a lot of Law & Order, and Emil Skoda interviewed everyone. So I asked an actual attorney who went to an actual law school and worked in criminal defense. She guest-hosted back during the Insight days of the show. Her name's Dominique Mix. Anyway, she said that the short answer to this is yes. In the U.S., a defendant putting up a psychiatric defense has to meet with a state examiner, though the scope of the questions asked is limited. Anu in Australia did not have to submit to an examination by the Crown's experts because it would violate her right against self-incrimination. The Crown experts had to use the tests and reports from her defense experts to give a counterview and counterpoint to her claims that she had diminished responsibility for this crime. One of the Crown experts said that the symptoms of psychosis were likely linked to the drugs that Anu was taking and that much of her depression was centered in her eating disorder. Someone with an eating disorder who takes drugs is clearly someone in distress, but that doesn't diminish her responsibility for committing a violent crime, that she knew the difference between right and wrong at the time. Another expert said that Anu's problem wasn't that she couldn't reason well, it's that she couldn't handle her complex emotions, that this was an issue of maturity. He even contended that the borderline personality disorder wasn't an abnormality of the mind. Rather, it was a disorder of psychological development. He said that her desire to kill herself, holding these dinner parties and all of that, was never actually about 
following through on the suicide. It was about creating this drama, putting herself at the middle. As soon as she got to the point in her staging where she was supposed to inject herself, she didn't do it. She was able to hold back in her plan to kill herself, but now wants to say she wasn't fully responsible for killing someone else because she couldn't completely control that decision. The judge took all this evidence and the competing experts, and when he made his verdict, it was over 50 pages long of an explanation. He found Anu not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. He believed that Anu's mental illness did lessen her culpability. He set her sentencing hearing for June 21st. When sentencing came around, more psychiatric evidence was presented. Psychiatrists who had seen Anu after the murder testified that she felt deep remorse. One even testified that she could be helped with just three to six months of an inpatient treatment, and then she could be released. The same expert said that Anu was unlikely to reoffend unless she got back into drugs or she again became severely depressed. But even then, even under those circumstances, it would be maybe a 10% chance of reoffense. Maria Cinque entered a written impact statement to the court, which a news attorney objected to parts of it being admitted. Which parts? We don't know. The judge opted to allow the whole thing in, but he read it to himself. It was not read publicly into the record. Anu was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Her non-parole period was set at four years, but she had been in custody for over 600 days at that point. She got credit for all of that. So it would only be a little more than two years before she would be eligible for parole for the first time. Afterwards, the Chinques were incredibly angry. They were angry, as you can understand, through much of this process. Their son was dead. They have never really reconciled what they see as a huge injustice for their son's death. And the next trial was not going to help, because in November 1999, Madhavi went to trial. She was charged with murder, unlawful and felonious slaying, attempted murder, and administering a stupefying drug. The judge sped things up by just reading the transcript from the first trial. That saved everyone the trouble of coming back in and answering all the same questions. The Crown had a huge hurdle. They couldn't put a syringe in Madhavi's hand. They couldn't even say for sure that she knew or if she believed a new story about what she was going to do. They couldn't prove that she saw anything. They ended up arguing a duty of care case, basically saying Madhavi saw Joe unconscious on Sunday morning. He was alive, but even her own admission said he wasn't looking great. She noted that his lips had a blue tint to them. She should have done something, and because she didn't, Joe was dead. Friends ended up testifying that Madhavi was manipulated by Anu in a number of ways, 
and at times appeared to actually be afraid of her. So in the end, the judge ended up finding Madhavi not guilty on all counts because there was no good Samaritan law. This was similar to if you saw someone having a heart attack and you kept on walking. You aren't guilty of murder because you don't have to stop and help. It's not illegal to not help someone. And there was nothing special in Madavi's relationship to Joe or to the situation that put her in a place of being responsible for his care. So Madavi was now completely free to move on with her life after this. Now, four years after Joe's murder, two after the conviction, Anu was up for parole. Maria Cinque insisted on going to the parole hearing, though the attorney advising her told her that this was going to go in Anu's favor. It didn't really matter what Anu had done before. That was for the trial. What the parole board was concerned with was if Anu had done what she was supposed to do in prison, she showed remorse for what she had done, and she stayed out of trouble. And that's what Anu did. When Anu was granted parole, Maria interrupted the judge, saying how unfair this was, that Anu had murdered her son, spent four years in jail, and got out when she was young enough to get married if she wanted, have a family if she wanted, have a career, all these things that Joe never got to do. In May 2017, Anu gave an interview with a television program called Sunday Night to talk about what had happened nearly 20 years previously. Then, 44 years old, Anu only asked that Joe's parents be shown the recording of her apology. That was her condition for this interview. In it, she said, quote, I would like to say to them that I am deeply, deeply sorry for what happened, and that if I could, if there was any way I could turn back the clock, I would do so in a heartbeat. The Chinques said in response that they want to know why she really killed Joe, because they don't believe her story. They still believe that she killed him because he was leaving her. They called her a monster and said they will never, ever forgive her for destroying their family. Crime Lines is made possible through support through Patreon. For $1 a month, you get every episode two days early and ad-free. For $3 a month, you also get an exclusive bonus episode. Another way to support the show is to simply share it with a friend or on social media. Thank you for listening.